is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. 50,000 homes in five years. That's the goal of a group created by the emergency proclamation signed into law Monday by Governor Josh Green. It would cut through red tape now holding back the development of housing units by suspending certain types of reviews. But critics worry that cultural and environmental safeguards could be lost in the shuffle to build fast. And others are concerned that the order suspends the state's sunshine law and puts too much power in the hands of the state's housing officer. Nani Medeiros is that officer. She took time out yesterday to explain the approach, which she says is not a broad suspension of safeguards, but rather the approach of a scalpel cutting barriers to building. Well, what we're trying to do is really take a deep dive into understanding what the challenges are from all perspectives. We talked to county workers, city workers, state workers, actual process owners, to learn what their challenges are in helping to expedite any kind of reviews, plans, permitting, approvals for housing projects. And then we also talk to folks on the industry side, you know, people who actually have to develop the homes from your developers to your contractors to your subs to trades and construction workers, you know, and find out what their challenges were. Um, we, we talked with environmental groups. We talked with Native Hawaiian cultural ex- experts got a lot of feedback, and decided to take the approach of taking a scalpel to the statutes and administrative rules where we could, rather than just completely wiping out certain processes. And when you read the emergency proclamation and the attached rules and the guidebook that we had developed, you can really see that. Where we have suspended full chapters, it's, it's for the tailored purpose of projects that are certified under the emergency proclamation. And we've developed alternative processes in place of what was suspended. And the purpose of having the working group made up of a lot of those people from those state agencies, Shipti's on the work group. Um, DLNR is on the work group. Commission on Water Resource Management. All of these agencies are there at the table to ensure that when we review project applications, they meet the criteria. And, and they've provided documentation, analysis, and assessment that is required. Well, one concern that has come up is transparency. They're also suspending the sunshine laws. And so there's a little bit uneasiness. So I do understand what some of those comments have been referring to. From our perspective, Chapter 92 is suspended to actually help allow agencies, boards, and commissions to meet more often. It also allows them to deal with some of their quorum challenges, where if they don't have quorum, they can't meet. For example, any of our housing agencies that are governed by boards, where they have a board of directors, any of our our similar county agencies, if there are any, our island burial councils, our neighborhood boards, our county councils, everybody can now meet more often without having to post six days notice. If they can only give five days notice, or four days notice or three days notice to have a meeting, this suspension allows them to do that. If they can meet, but they don't have quorum, suspending 92 allows them to do that. And in some cases, I mean, I I know many cases from sitting on a couple of, of boards on behalf of the governor, we don't finish the business or the agenda in the meeting that is scheduled. Suspending Chapter 92 allows them to reconvene quickly if they wanted to reconvene the next day, in fact you know, and continue that discussion. And again, this is specific to projects that are certified. Let me give you a specific example. There's a part of our alternative 6E process we create where if there are EV discovered, the island burial council of the, of the island in which the project is located is the body that actually gets to make the decision and review plans. So that suspension of 92 would allow island burial councils to meet quickly and meet often. And island burial councils have particularly been challenged with quorum requirements. So this allows uh, all of our, you know, kind of organizations from commissions and groups and councils all the way up to state agencies, DHHL, Hawaiian Homelands, um, Hawaii Public Housing Authority, DHHSDC, they can all meet quicker and be more responsive because this is a crisis and we need urgent responses not responses that take two or three months because they couldn't get quorum. So that was the intent of that? Correct. Because these meetings, mind you, they can still be public. And and we're encouraging all of these agencies or commissions, if they choose to exercise the benefit of being able to meet sooner, meet without quorum, 
we still encourage them to do everything like they would normally do. If you normally have a Zoom link or YouTube, do that. Continue to do that. We're not trying to take away the opportunity for the public to participate or view what's happening. We simply want to support these agencies in moving faster with having their public hearings. So the intent is not to do things behind closed doors? Nope. And then the criticism or the concern that you might wield too much power on these decisions? There's one provision in the emergency proclamation that gives gives the lead housing officer the ability to determine if a state or county project could proceed without certification from the working group that's created in the um, in the emergency proclamation. And the specific language is a may. It's not a shall. So it's not a guarantee that every county project that gets proposed or every state agency project gets proposed. There's no guarantee that they don't have to go through the working group. There will be some analysis on the part of the lead housing officer in making that determination. In addition to that, if the determination is made that they don't have to go through the working group, that agency still has to abide by all of its own processes. So if they have a board that governs their agency, they still have to meet with their board, get their board's approval for different projects, and they will still have to work through all of the administrative rules that are created under the emergency proclamation. They still have to follow those same steps. Should they need any assistance, if they find themselves struggling and they would appreciate the help of the working group, the working group is going to be there ready to assist them. But I do not single-handedly get to wave a magic wand and say you no longer have to comply with any of these laws in any way whatsoever, including your own internal processes. That's not what that's not what that does. We've been hearing from Nani Maduros, Governor Green's point person on housing. She addresses some of the concerns about this approach to cutting through red tape to get more housing built. More from her after a break. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, committed to an equitable and thriving Hawaii, supporting initiatives such as affordable housing, fresh water, and the healthy development of young children. HawaiiCommunityFoundation.org. Today on The Daily, a conversation with Phoenix's chief heat officer about how the city is adjusting to the new reality of chronic extreme heat and whether we're adapting to it fast enough. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. Support for HPR comes from the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission with guidance on how to help keep families safe at home, such as placing carbon monoxide alarms in the hallway outside of bedroom areas and testing them regularly. More at cpsc.gov. We're trying to better understand the Green Administration's plan to fast-track construction of housing because of our crisis. And while there were efforts to reach out across the community to get input on the barriers to getting homes built faster, some have questioned whether the suspensions of laws having to do with open meetings and proper review on projects would be too high of a price to pay. Would restrictions on heights and density be ignored? Could a high-rise be taller than Diamond Head or the Waipahu Sugar Mill or in areas that have protected views? Let's pick up our interview with Nani Maderos, the state's chief housing officer. Well, uh, let me bring up one project that I know we've highlighted uh, before, and that's a project in Waipahu. It's Kamehameha School's land, and they're proposing a a tower, mixed use, but they wanted to go higher than what the rules allow. And the community, you know, was asked what they wanted in the TOD process, and they, you know, gave their input. But then now this project comes up, and because it's going to provide affordable senior housing, that kind of thing. The developer's just asking for more. I I can see why they'd be miffed saying, hey, you asked us what we wanted, we told you, and maybe now it doesn't matter. 
did the Waipahu community want less density than what the developer was asking for originally? Well, they wanted to put the higher towers in another area, and they wanted to keep the historic feel of the sugar mill and keep that more low-rise, mid-rise versus a, a higher tower. You're probably going to you know, get some of that. Sure, yeah. So part of, there are 12 criteria that are outlined in order for a proponent to apply for certification through the working group. And certification, essentially, if you're given it, means you get to you get the benefit of the emergency proclamation, anything that is suspended or exemptions or alternative processes. One of the criteria is that the project proponent has to obtain public input. And we require at least one public meeting. We give some examples of what that meeting can look like. We require that the public input has to be accepted and documented. We require public notice in circulation with 30 day, a 30-day period for the public to respond with written comments. And we require a plan for that proponent to consult with appropriate stakeholder groups regarding any impacts to the environment or cultural resources, um, any impacts that are anticipated. There's a fair amount of work that the proponent has to do on the front end in order to, you know, and has to include that in their application to the working group to be considered for approval. And that whole plan will be evaluated by the working group. So I, I think that there are definitely, we've built in guardrails and safeguards to ensure that public opinion, that there, there is an opportunity or, or multiple opportunities for public opinion. Okay, so it's not like a slam dunk just because they say, oh, it's going to be affordable or it's going to be, uh, you know, senior housing. No, I, I mean, I think it's fair to say nothing is a slam dunk. And when you when you really look at the criteria, I mean, I encourage your listeners, if they haven't, to really look at the criteria because it, it is it is very detailed. And we crafted it intentionally that way because understanding what we're doing, the seriousness of what we're doing, the boldness of what we're doing in terms of providing either suspensions or exemptions or alternative paths, we wanted to make sure that we were getting very thoughtful projects and projects that could really provide what we're trying to get to, the type of housing that we're trying to get to, and provide it in a timely manner. So one of the other requirements we have is you have to start construction within three years of the day that your development agreement is executed with the state. And we pick three years for a number of reasons, but one of them is because a, a project that's really just an idea at this point in time, they're not going to be ready for construction within three years. Projects that will be serious, you know, have already in some way done planning, done analysis, looked for financing, secured financing. Those are the ones that will be able to begin construction within three years. And in the pipeline, I know in the materials that you passed out earlier in the week, there are two projects that we've heard about. You know, one is 690 Pohukaina, and that was supposed to be the, at the time, the tallest high rise, right? But a lot of affordables mm -hmm. in town mm -hmm. near rail. Mm -hmm. And then Mayor Wright Homes, you know, because that mm -hmm. project mm -hmm. really needs to be overhauled. And we need to provide more housing where rail is going to be. Yes. One of the things that we would also get really excited to see happen would be if our state housing agency, so you referenced 690 Pohukaina, which is an HHSTC project. It's an affordable housing project. 100% of the units are affordable between 30% AMI and 120% AMI. And of course, at that 120, 100% to 120% AMI, we're talking about workforce, 30% to 60% or even 30% to 80%. You're talking about pretty low wage earners in the state. So this is a great project in terms of the, the scope of economic diversity. This project will help. The second project you mentioned is the is a um, Hawaii Public Housing Authority project, redevelopment of Mayor Wright Homes. And this, this project as well is going to help provide affordable housing units. This one is 88% of units at below 100% AMI, and there will be a mixture within that. We would be really pleased from the governor's perspective if the first you know, few projects that can be helped through the emergency proclamation are projects for our own state agencies because we know that these are the projects that help kind of, you know, the, the most vulnerable, if you will. In the case of public housing, those are probably the poorest of our folks that, that need housing. We're structuring some of these projects in such a way, not, not we, uh, the working group, Hawaii Public Housing Authority, I apologize. I'm also on the board of directors for them. So at HPHA, you know, they're really trying to structure some of the financing of these projects where there's a mix so you can help to subsidize the lower cost units with some of the higher ones up at 100% AMI, for example. But 
I think we would just be really pleased from the governor's office if if these are two projects we could help right away through the EP, that would be a win, you know, or even a DHHL project or even a county project that's using some of their county affordable housing funds that they have set aside. Yeah, I mean, those two um, projects were started installed. Mm-hmm, uh, and so, mm-hmm. I mean, I recall, you know, sitting through those meetings, you know, and listening to the developers pitch it and and here it is years later and, you know, we're, we're no closer. So, yeah, hopefully if, if you can get those types of housing units done, I mean, rails, you know, not there yet, but hopefully they can be built so that by the time the train does get there, you've already got your ridership. Yeah, exactly. Anything else uh, that you want to underscore just on the environmental side? We were fortunate enough to have DLNR director Don Chang, and she was addressing some of the cultural concerns, uh, you know, with EV and archaeological sites. But what about on the environmental site? Uh, you know, because I don't know, you know, you know, maybe there are issues about sewage capacity or, you know, just other environmental impacts to weigh. All of those things, environmental impacts, they have to be addressed in your application. That's another thing that we specifically call out. Environmental impacts, we call out the infrastructure needs. We call out a description of the methods of disposal, the source, you know, waste disposal, the sources of water, other utilities. We require the applications to show what capacity is. And then we also have, again, on the working group, members from county boards of water supply. The Commission on Water Resource Management, you know, we, we and, and this is exactly why, because even if we're trying to create a process that delivers units faster, we, we still very much want the experts in the room and we want them in the room and around the same table so that they can all talk, you know, together in a coordinated fashion and have such a linear process. And we think that that model of having the working group and bringing everybody together will help to accomplish that. But we're not sacrificing anything about identifying or disclosing environmental impacts and any plans to mitigate them. And then we have safeguards. If there's a determination made, you're going to have a significant impact. You have to go into your EIS. And same thing with uh, 60. If there's a determination that you are in a highly sensitive area, you have to go to your AIS. You're, you're not getting an exemption. And you're talking um, about the uh, state historic Preservation Division? Correct. The the guidebook, you know, in addition to the actual EP and the rules where we lay out in detail these criteria and requirements that you have to include in your application, the guidebook also provides additional detail. And we also have, we're going to be publishing on our website examples of what good submissions look like. And and that's one, one specific thing I'm going to call out. We, we name Kapa'akai in the guidebook so that proponents, project proponents know include a kapa'akai analysis in your application. And the kapa'akai is your cultural impact analysis, right? It's looking at what's the area I'm in, are there going to be any cultural impacts? And people should be familiar with what a kapa'akai includes and what you have to do. So, you know, we're being very inclusive, thoughtful, respectful, and not sacrificing any of those documentation, but we're doing it on the front end. What is the definition of kapa'akai? There was a lawsuit from 90s or 1990, maybe. It was a long time ago. And essentially, the decision that was made resulted in the requirement of what is referred to as a Kapa'akai analysis. It's named after one of the plaintiffs. You have to do an analysis of cultural impact in the area or ahupua of which your project lies. If there's any cultural impacts, you have to identify them. And then you have to identify what your mitigation plan is. In terms of our meetings, like we had a lot of meetings, right? We met with over 200 unique people, and most of them we met with three, four, five times. And we heard this from advocates in the Native Hawaiian community. We heard this from Sea Worm, Commission on Water Resource Management. We heard it from Shipti. We heard it all over. And so we wanted to make sure we preserved it. We called it out. And project proponents know from the beginning, you have to include this with Environmental, if there's not going to be a significant impact, if there's no long-term permanent, you know, irreparable damage kind of impact, and, and, and this, again, this is all outlined and spelled out in detail in the emergency proclamation rules. If there's not going to be significant impact, then you can move ahead. It's almost a short version of EA. It's an existing exemption, currently exists, called a Part 2. People can look it up on the website of Hawaii's uh, environmental response program. And they fill out this information. It's basically a memo, probably Mm going to be around three to four pages on average, where they identify the project, where Mm -hmm. it's located, what it is, what the environmental, what the environment they're building this project is, what the impacts are going to be, 
if there's going to be any kind of an impact, what's their mitigation plan again? But we're assuming here, if, if they're able to do the part two, the impact is nominal. It's not permanent, right? There's not, there's, it's, it's not anything irre, irreversible, so to say. So you fill out that form, it gets published on the ERP, on the OPSD of mm-hmm. Office of Planning and Sustainable right. Development website. So it's made public. So we're going to use that route for projects that don't have any significant findings. That was Nani Maderos, State Housing Officer and Point Person for the Green Administration for dealing with our housing crisis. The goal is to build 50,000 units in five years to deal with our shortage. The working group created by the emergency proclamation meets to begin the work next month. Today, uh, excuse me, this is the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Uh, Now it's time for your backyard quiz. We are thumbing through the history books for our backyard quiz, looking at record-breaking temperatures. A glance at the headlines will tell you that global heat waves are affecting continents in extreme ways. Right now, we're seeing the tail end of Tropical Storm Calvin, but across the ocean, more than 70 million people are under heat alerts from California to Florida. For the past few weeks, Phoenix, Arizona, has been sweltering, clocking in at a hover, over 100 or more than 110 degrees for 19 days straight. Uh, some scientists say it's global warming in action. Others argue weather is just not as predictable as we would like it to be. Either way, Hawaii has maintained relative temperature stability so far this summer, avoiding highs in the 90s and 100s experienced by other cities. But there was a time and place in Hawaii that recorded a triple-digit temperature And for today's Backyard Quiz, can you tell us when and where that was? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag from HPR. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing housing for the homeless, including U.S. Vets, with its Kamaoku Kauhale Tiny Homes community. NairitHawaii.com. Waste not one. Our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat have a story about all the H2O flushed into Pearl Harbor during the fuel crisis affecting our drinking water. Reporter Christina Jedra joins us today. Good morning. Hey, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so you're taking a look at what's the status of all the flushing over there at Red Hill. Right. If you recall, so the Red Hill well was contaminated with fuel. And in order to suck up all of that tainted water, they decided to pump the well 5 million gallons a day and filter the water and then dump that filtered water, you know, hopefully clean, into the Halava stream. Basically, to suck up that contamination like a straw out of the well, out of the aquifer, so that it didn't spread further, you know, towards other wells like Board of Water Supply wells. So that started back in January of last year. It's now been a year and a half, and the Navy and regulators had pledged to work together to find a plan to reuse all that water, either for irrigation or some other use rather than just dumping it. But still today, there is no plan, and the Navy is now saying there's probably not going to be one. They're just going to keep dumping it in the stream. Yeah, and that's what they told us when we were calling about this a couple months back. It was surprising because they were talking about, oh, maybe we could divert it for irrigation on the golf courses, but they never did. 
Right. You can think of so many uses. So a year and a half later, two billion plus gallons of water have been wasted. I mean, imagine what we could have done with that. And I spoke with a, a Navy official, Sarah Moody's, their chief environmental officer on Red Hill. And she said that there's just not the infrastructure there to transport that water um, from the well site to, you know, golf courses or what have you. All of their engineering might, she said, is focused on defueling, getting the 100 million gallons of fuel out of Red Hill. That's the priority. And then I said, what about like bringing in tanker trucks, anything to figure out a way to reuse this? And she said that they did a study on that possibility, but that the emissions would sort of outweigh the benefit of reusing that water. Now, not everyone's buying that, but that's what she's saying. Yeah, and I recall at the time they had just gotten the okay to reduce the amount of water that they were flushing. I mean, I think at at one time, too, during this process, you probably remember that they exceeded their permit and they were taking out more than they should have. But I think when we talked to her in June that she said, yeah, they were reducing the amount that they were flushing. Right. The amount that they've pumped has fluctuated. It started at 5 million gallons a day. And then they wanted to see if they could, you know, wind this down and hopefully the contamination isn't there anymore. So um, they reduced the pumping amount to, you know, less than half of that for a time earlier this year. And they started testing monitoring wells to see, okay, is is the water clean? You know, where is the plume, basically? So they're still waiting on those results to come back. In the meantime, they've ramped up the pumping again just, you know, as a precaution and at the direction of the health department in case there is something still there, it doesn't spread around. Right. We don't know how long this could go on. could be a while longer. Yeah, we don't know, you know, obviously, yeah, what's left there on the lens, on the aquifer. You know, we uh, mm-hmm. the Board of Water Supply had concerns about how much they were pumping because would it affect our other wells, you know, coming out of the aquifer and affect, you know, the, the greater population of Honolulu, which also gets its water from that same aquifer? Right. This is our primary source aquifer. And I really want to emphasize that the aquifer doesn't recharge overnight. It's not like every time it rains, it just fills back up. Like it takes time for the water to filter down. So it is a resource that is limited and over pumping does carry the risk of making that water and aquifer salty from saltwater intrusion. Um, so it is important to be careful about how much we're pumping. And meanwhile, the, the Navy is using a different well further away from Red Hill to service the Joint Base Pearl Harbor-Hickam area. So they're still getting water for, you know, the residences and buildings and military operations there. But then this other well, 5 million gallons a day, is just getting tossed. And um, people feel it's a real shame. Yeah, I mean, I don't know about you, but I actually went down to to see where that Halaba stream ended up in the harbor, you know, and they've got booms there and uh, things in place to try to, you know, mitigate if there is a problem, but it is a lot of water. It sure is. And that's the other thing is we don't really know the environmental impact of putting what is now fresh water, so it's not salty, into the stream and out into the ocean. Um, You know, there are some concerns from community members about that, whether that could impact you know, either microorganisms or fish. We just don't know. It wasn't exactly studied. You know, this was all done in an emergency and, you know, it was probably necessary, uh, all considering, but there's always drawbacks. All right. Okay. Well, we'll just uh, have to see how the the tests go and what the results say. But thanks so much, Christina. Thank you, Catherine. That was reporter Christina Jedra with today's Reality Check. Read the full story at civilbeat.org. City held a grand opening at Kehi Lagoon Beach Park for the city for the island's first dedicated 
pickleball complex earlier this week. Pickleball is the fastest growing sport in the country, and here in Hawaii, it's no different. Demands for courts, for recreational play, for lessons and tournaments has outpaced available spaces in some areas. That prompted the city to open a public survey to gather feedback on proposed new rules for all of its parks outdoor courts. Nate Sirota is with the Department of Parks and Recreation. The conversations Russell Subiano sat down with Sirota to talk about the survey and the new complex. So the survey is really our way of gathering community input on what we've drafted so far. So this is actually the third survey that we've conducted on the outdoor courts. And what we wanted to do was we wanted to kind of put out there ideas that we had come up with regarding how we think we can better manage the courts and really create a set of rules that can better serve the public and make it so that there's equal opportunities for people uh, to enjoy these outdoor facilities. So we started the process with, I think the first survey was more kind of gauging how people use the courts, you know, what time of day, what activities were most popular. And the second one really delved more into some of the ideas that we had. And a lot of it would be kind of, for instance, like our, our tennis courts tend to have a lot more rules than the other courts. Primarily, one of the more common and well-known rules for the tennis courts is that there's a 45-minute usage time period. So if you and I are playing and there's no one there wanting to use the court, we can play as long as the court is open uh, to the general public. But say someone else comes and wants to use that court, when they come, we have 45 minutes to wrap up our game, and then they can use the court. But really, on paper, that rule only applies to tennis courts. So one of the things that we're considering is maybe applying that to all of the courts so there's kind of a standard way of the uh, understanding of the public using these courts so that there's just more equity in the way that they're utilized. Is it because pickleball is the fastest growing sport in the country and pickleball courts are in such demand in Hawaii here? Is that part of the reason or is that the reason why the county is taking a closer look at some of these rules, including this 45-minute rule? That's part of it, the kind of increased and pickleball usage, and kind of I'll go back a little bit too. So prior to this, what we'll kind of probably talk about later, this push by us to make more dedicated courts, the way we were accommodating the sport is we were putting what we call shadow lines on existing courts. So you'd have like a volleyball court, and we'd put pickleball lines on that volleyball court so it would create a multi-use court. So people could come play volleyball, pickleball, and they'd have to put up their own net because you wouldn't want to put a permanent net up in that situation. So it did create a bit of an increase in the usage of these facilities. That being said, one of the other main topics that we're focusing on is actually the commercial use of these courts, particularly for like classes and instruction and and those kinds of things and for tournaments and stuff like that. Because really the the ultimate purpose of these courts is for the, the general recreational use of the public, right? We want them to be open for everyone to use at their leisure and for them to, you know, be able to work into their schedule, going outdoors and exercising regularly because it's, you know, a part of a healthy lifestyle. But we do also recognize that these classes that are taught, that the tournaments that are held, the permanent activities that use these courts do have a, a value to the community as well. And so we wanted to try and find that balance while also emphasizing that really these courts are meant for kind of casual recreational use of the public. So, it's, it's kind of both of those topics really fed into the, the impetus for creating these revisions to the outdoor rules, the increased usage that we're seeing, kind of correlating with the rise of pickleball, and then also with the kind of proliferation of more classes and tournaments and more of that commercial activity that we're seeing on the court. So with the increased demand for pickleball and the county's efforts to create a lot of these dual usage courts... What is the county seeing with the other courts, like basketball courts, volleyball courts, tennis courts? Are numbers increasing, decreasing, staying the same? So it's it's kind of difficult. One of the more difficult questions that we get is regarding usage of facilities, particularly when they are so open to the public. You know, we've got some facilities like Hanama Bay and Foster Botanical Garden where we have you know, paid entry, actually those are really the only two where we have paid entry and there's like a designated entry and exit so we can actually monitor and, and count how many people are using them. But when you talk about, you know, like a, a court that's open from 5 a.m. to 10 p.m., it's really difficult to get like a, a complete accurate picture of how they're used. So a lot of what we do is observational data from staff and from the community, their input that they give to us. 
So I'm not sure if there's been any particular drop-off of, of the use of these other courts when they were made multi-use. You know, if there's a volleyball court that has pickleball lines as well as, say, like the volleyball players weren't coming as much because pickleball was using it. That would be kind of difficult for us to determine. I'd, I'd really have to ask some of my coworkers, and they may give me different stories depending on what facilities that they operate. So kind of difficult to say one way or another whether you know making these multi-use courts has affected one sport versus the other. Do you know if the county has ever seen such an increase in usage like this before? Something that kind of your question rings a bell with would be like skate parks. Started constructing skate parks in our city parks, I think, probably more the early 90s, early 2000s, right in its heyday when, you know, Tony Hawk was really popular. And so I think that would probably be a correlation where we saw the need for this sport and it was becoming more mainstream and even more mainstream now that it's an Olympic sport. So we needed to build facilities to accommodate that user group because otherwise they were going to be using areas that weren't particularly designated for them. So uh, in that case, yeah, I, I think, you know, you build it and they will come. If you um, add additional facilities, it kind of helps to grow the user base. But certainly pickleball, because I think you could integrate it into some of the existing facilities, I think it, it proliferated really on its own. And then it was just us needing to kind of catch up to the demand. Before the press conference on Sunday, I wanted to brush up on pickleball. So I had my buddy, you know, we, we played a little bit and he told me some of the finer details of it because I knew the rules. And we went to Mother Waldron, there's two designated pickleball courts there, and that was packed. There was, you know, plenty of people using it. And every time I've gone to Mother Waldron Park, those pickleball courts are being used. And he told me that there was another court that he tends to go to at Diamond Head Tennis Center, and sure enough, that was open. So I think that would be really one of the goals that we see is, you know, we want them to be popular and to be well used, but then we also want there to be options available to the public, right? We want them to not be dissuaded by the fact that, you know, if they go to one pickleball facility and it's full that, okay, well, we either have to wait here for this to open up or we just can't play today. No, we want them to have something available to them so that even if they can just go a short drive or a short distance to another park, that there is something open that they can use at that time. Yeah, I imagine that at some point somebody is going to create a pickleball app that'll tell you, you know, what courts are being used and what court is open. You know, I wouldn't be surprised yeah. that technology is, is Remarkable, and you know that's a whole another discussion about how much, how well it can monitor our behavior, right? Right, right. On Monday, the county held a blessing and grand opening ceremony for the new pickleball complex at Keahi Lagoon Beach Park. Can you share the details about that facility? So this is our first dedicated pickleball complex in our city park inventory. So we're really excited that it was, you know, as well received as it was, and that it's now online. You know, it's it's open. When Cahey Lagoon Beach Park is open, this pickleball court complex is open to the public. And so this is really the, the largest cluster that we have by far. I think, you know, the most dedicated courts maybe was Camilo Iki in Hawaii Kai. I think it was six or so. I'd have to look that up. But this was the first court, series of courts, I should say, that we repurposed in kind of this overall effort that we're doing of taking some underutilized courts in our inventory from all three different types of courts, whether it's tennis, basketball, or volleyball and repurposing them to dedicated pickleball courts. And so one thing I do want to clarify, you know, when we say underutilized, it doesn't mean that they weren't utilized at all. You know, all these courts at, at some time in some capacity are used by the public, but we're really trying to get the biggest bang for our buck, particularly with, you know, the increased demand for pickleball facilities as it's continuing to be the fastest growing sport in the country. We wanted to try and accommodate that user group and Try and do it quickly because one of the ways, you know, we could build new facilities, but that just takes a significant amount of time and more money as well, too. Whenever you're building something new, particularly in the government, it's going to take at least a year or two, more than likely two or three years. When you talk about procurement and studying the area and getting community input, as opposed to if a facility already exists and we can repurpose it, this one, I mean, this is a great example. This was four tennis courts that turned into 12 pickleball courts. And they did it in a matter of weeks. We put it on our contractor's timeline back in March, but they had some previous work because they also do our resurfacing of other courts. So once they were able to get it in, it, it took a pretty short amount of time for them to get the work done. So that's pretty promising that we're able to get these courts open and repurposed rather quickly so that we can try and get these dedicated courts online so the public can use them as soon as possible. Thanks so much for your time, Nate. Uh, thanks, Russell. 
That was Nate Sirota, who was with the city's Parks and Recreation Department. He was talking with HBR's Russell Subiono. The last day to fill out the city's survey regarding new proposed rules for outdoor courts is tomorrow, Friday, July 21st. We'll have a link to the survey and the new pickleball complex on the conversation page of our website later today. As media becomes more digital, the future is looking bright for the influencers. You see people like Mr. Beast that have a level of scale that rival a traditional broadcaster. But then you have people that only have 500 followers that are able to make a living through charging a high subscription amount. Influencers and the latest social media battles next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Beginning Saturday at noon following Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting Salman Tour, No Ordinary Love, paintings telling personal stories centered on brown, queer characters. On view now, honolulumuseum.org. Things you can buy for a dollar, a gumball, a pencil, an entire Hawaiian island. When I saw that he had purchased Lanai for only one dollar, I was like, How is that allowed to happen? On the next episode of This Is Our Hawaii, how Lanai first fell under private ownership a hundred years ago. Available tomorrow, wherever you get your podcasts. And now, the blistering answer to our backyard quiz. This summer, we've seen thousands of record-setting high temperatures across the globe. The U.S. continent is entering its 40th consecutive day of an intense heat wave, with dangerous temperatures breaking over 2,300 records from Florida to California. Forecasters say these extreme temperatures could last into August. Here in our corner of paradise, we're experiencing wet and windy skies, but there was a time and place when Hawaii posted a record temperature similar to what's being reported worldwide. For many of you, it happened before you were born, perhaps even before your parents were born, and it hasn't hit that mark since. It wasn't even summer when the thermometer hit 100 degrees, but on that spring day, April 27, 1931, the record high was posted in the small plantation town of Pahala on the Big Island. And that was the answer we were looking for. We had no winners, but that's our quiz for today. If you have an idea for one you'd like to share, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. Did you know Hawaii has soccer teams made up of Native Hawaiians? Well, the Na'alapa Hawaii teams make their debut this week in New Zealand. That's where we find HPR's Ku'uvehi Reishi. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. This Na'alapa Hawaii team, men's and women's, are made up of some of the best Native Hawaiians. So it's an all-Native Hawaiian squad from across the islands. And the founders of this program started about three years ago scouting potential players to join this team. I think a pool of about 300 players were considered and then dwindled down to about 40 who are here in Aotearoa in Auckland to face off against the Maori football Aotearoa organization. And so for those who might not have been following or heard of these teams, uh, the idea for these teams are really to help players, Native Hawaiian players and Maori players reach the highest levels of competitive soccer by allowing them opportunities to compete at this international level. So when they play, they won't at this current stage be recognized by FIFA, the organizing body, so they can't at this point join World Cup, for example, and represent their nations in World Cup. But we've seen a number of unrecognized teams around the world. I think of Kiribati and some in the Pacific, but also Catalan there in Spain. But for the players here in Aotearoa, it took a few days for them to acclimate to this chilly winter weather. 
they flew in Tuesday and they've been training every day since. I spoke to some of the Kane players who say they're ready for Monday's match against the Maori. I feel super confident in us. I think we just everyone's com everyone communicates, everyone tackles, everyone's on the same page. We're gonna we're gonna do super good. I'm pretty confident in myself and in the squad. I think we can do pretty good. I have no idea what's the level of the Maori football. Um, I'm assuming they're pretty good, and I'm just excited to have our first official game. You know. That was 18-year-old Royal Kalakekuewa of Eva Beach, 18-year-old Manoa Knight of Hanalei, Hawaii, and 16-year-old Kanilao Tolentino Perry of Puna, who says in Olalo Hawaii he thinks the, the team ready, but that they just need to continue training in this chilly of weather. Uh, so we're looking at about, uh, we're in the 50s here. And uh, when the sun is not shining and it is cold and rainy, it can be quite impactful to their game. Uh, but today, the team will have a chance to put that training to work in a warm-up match against Mount Albert's Grammar School or MAGS, which locals here consider the Kamehameha schools of high school sports in Auckland. Vernon Kapua'ala, co-founder and president of Vai or the Hawaiian Football Federation, which runs the Hawaiian national team program, says the team's debut here in Aotearoa will be critical, a critical one in adding some legitimacy to the program. It's super critical. I mean, win or lose, that's it's a whole different conversation. But the fact that it's going to happen for the first time, you can only have one first time ever. And that's going to be Monday at Nahue Reserve. We're going to sing our national anthem and then, and then we're going to get it on, right? And so will they, right? And so, I mean, massive in more ways than we know. So whether it was World Cup, FIFA World Cup, Women's World Cup or not, we're going to do this. You know, people think the World Cup is the biggest thing in town right now. It's not. It's that Maori football is hosting Kanakapovavai in Aotearoa. Holy. That's the biggest story in town right now. So let's step back a second just for our listeners. So you're there, you know, the World Cup is happening, uh, but we've got kind of this exhibition uh, game going on or side action. Right, right. And to explain maybe Maori football, Maori football has been around since 2008, and they've sort of been trying to get that recognition from FIFA to join in games like the World Cup because they are not officially, you know, they have a New Zealand national team, but for the Maori, they consider them they consider themselves occupied, right? And so they want to represent the Maori nation, if that makes sense, and that's the same for. Kapua Ala, who says that Vai is really sort of this patriotic exercise and a way for them to teach the kids or expose the kids who are playing soccer or football uh, to the Hawaiian culture and sort of rebuild that national identity. And we've seen this, as I mentioned earlier, with the Catalans there in Spain, the Maori here, and these programs are growing. Hawaii's is fairly new, but for Maori national team program, they've been around, like I said, since 2008, and they've actually got players represented on the New Zealand national team in this year's Women's World Cup. And we got a chance to see, watch two of them play last night in the opening match. Taylor Pickering Parker, whose father, Philip, founded Maori football, was there from the beginning of the program, first as a player and now a coach for Maori women's team. She says it's inspiring to see that Maori representation in this sort of top level of the game. For a start, it proves that Maori do aspire to make professional um, codes and any codes, and to see young wahine Maori players come through, it, it proves to the rest of the, our community that there is pathways um, and that we can aspire to those top levels. Um, which is awesome because that's something that we want to continue to see, especially for our young, for our young players and our young athletes. So one thing we might want to note is that within, at least in U.S. soccer and the U.S. soccer youth programs, oftentimes players in rural areas 
or who can't afford to play for high cost private club teams or training don't have access to a high quality training experience that allows them to get to that level of, you know, representing their nation in games like the World Cup. And so these programs are really trying to reach out to communities, Maori communities in uh, Aotearoa, but also back home with Native Hawaiian communities to give them that opportunity. And so uh, both Māori football and Kanakapopa Vai are taking advantage of having this football's biggest competition in town by joining in a football treaty signing ceremony this Sunday. And that's where both federations are sort of uh, calling on FIFA for greater recognition and inclusion in the game, in the top level of the game. And so talk about the age range that we're we're dealing with with these players, for these uh, native teams. Yes. So right now we've got a U18 or under age 18 teams, men's and women's. Then we've got a youth team under 16 team. But the goal for Kapu'ala at least is to have about six different teams or age ranges, including a senior team, which is what we see when we watch the World Cup. The players on that team are, are the official you know, national team roster. And that's that's sort of the vision for, for this one. Okay, I know you're a huge soccer fan. You used to play. Uh, and, but we have had people from Hawaii on, um, you know, the, the national team uh, that have done really well. Right, right. I, I think first off of Natasha Kai of Kahuku, who represented the U.S. national team and took home a gold medal and uh, has scored at this level. So it's a possibility for Native Hawaiians to get to that level, just a matter of providing that access and opportunity. That's uh, what Kanaka Bobaba wants to do. All right. Okay. Well, we'll have a lot of fun while you're down there, please. <laughs> <laughs> Mahalo. We have been talking to Kuve Hirishi, who is down in New Zealand with, uh, with Hawaii teams uh, facing Maori teams on the field uh, in a scrimmage today, prepping for competition next week. Well, that's it. We're pal for today. Up tomorrow, we bring you a Hanaho show on summer reads. Grab a book before you head to the beach. Give us some feedback. Got questions about something you heard on our show? Call or talk back line. 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And if you want to listen back to something you heard, find the Conversation Podcast on Spotify or Apple or anywhere else you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation. 